Hello, horror fans, and welcome to episode two of Polly Hall's The Taxidermist Slover. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Taxidermist Slover. With Henry's work taking a hold on their lives, Scarlett can't help but wonder if her suggestion to diversify into hybrid taxidermy might have been a step too far. But with Felix D'Souza taunting them with his fame, and their neighbor always hovering at the sidelines wanting Henry's attention, is it any wonder Scarlett's tense? Then, Valentine's Day forges them closer together when Henry presents her with a swoodle a new imagined creature that's part swan and part poodle. Does this satisfy their desire to design hybrid creatures? Christmas Day. Today. Morning. The sun has come up, but it is still dimpsy, as we say here on the moor. The night never really gives way to the day at this time of year. We are only just past the shortest day when we begin to beckon the light back, as if we have any say in the matter. The world turns, and we turn with it. I am listening to Christmas music, carols, of course traditional. Once in Royal David's city, away in a manger, hark the herald angels sing, and, the inspiration for many a taxidermist, the twelve days of Christmas, featuring no fewer than twenty-three stuffable birds. Sorry, I know how you hate that misnomer. Taxidermy has evolved into an applied science and art that does not involve the process of stuffing, you frequently remind me. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't put the car sticker I bought you on the back of the truck. World's greatest stuffer. You were showering. I hear the water upstairs, and think of the water that has crept toward us out here. It has risen up and up, forcing houses to be evacuated as the rivers overflowed and crept up upon fields and farms and homes. We are slightly elevated here on our small mound, our magic island. At least the rain has stopped, but the water has not subsided, saturating the ground to its limit, then freezing over. It smells of retribution, leech dank and vengeful. Everything is grey, the sky, the silhouettes of trees, the water. I am sick of grey now, yearning for the colours of spring again, daffodil yellow and crocus violet. The world stands still, but today I push away the darkness and let in the light. This is Christmas Day, after all. You will soon light all the candles, and we can celebrate properly, invite the colour back into our home. In the early days, we used to shower together, letting the water ricochet from our bodies, lathering the gel onto each other's skin, reaching into crevices with our fingers, wanting to claim every inch like conquistadors, You'd hold the loofah between both your hands and pull me towards you, rolling the rough fibres against my back, while kissing me gently on my forehead, cheeks and eyelids, 
as the water cascaded between us. I sank into you then. But today there is dryness between us, where familiarity has drained away the immediacy of union. We no longer share those moments of cleansing. I hear the drains gurgle as you step out onto the bath mat, squeaky fresh and dripping. The cockerel crows outside, and a robin lands on the windowsill, looking directly at me, his eyes like shining black beads. I watch for a moment. Then he is gone, as if an invisible hand has erased him from a sketch. The music is on repeat, and Bing Crosby starts singing again about his dreams. Where the treetops glisten and children listen. It won't snow today. It is too still and cold. Besides, the ground is a lake of ice. We may as well be the lonely cherry on top of all that grey icing. Just like the ones we used to know. Your voice echoes down the hallway as you appear for the final verse of the song, dressed in jeans and a thick fisherman's sweater. You rub your hair with a towel and smile at me, and I feel safe. I sense your warmth and know that as long as you are near, I will be complete. This is going to be a wonderful Christmas. You kneel beside me and stroke my knee. I love you so much. You set about lighting the fire. There is a pile of dry logs against the wall, enough to last for several days if it is kept alight. First, you kneel down and clear the ash, place a fire starter and some kindling on top of a few rolled up scraps of newspaper. Then, lighting a match with one strike against the brick fireplace, you hold it there and I watch as the flames appear. Magic. You load more wood and I watch as the flames grow and channel up the flue. But as the fire takes hold and roars, so too do the stuffed animals in our home. The mammals, weary of fire, try to bolt, but remain stationed in their bodies. I can taste their emotions like charred wood. Then the birds attempt to fly away from the flames. And those creatures more suited to an aqueous environment attempt to hop or crawl from the heat radiating toward them. It is a struggle that tugs and stretches me in all directions. Fire does not unite. It cleanses and absolves. What do they fear? I know. But to you, all you do is gaze at the fire as you would a painting. And then you gaze at me, and all your creations lined up like odd spectres in a Christmas nativity gone wrong. The taxidermist lover will resume after this short message from the CamCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like to have a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of The Taxidermist Lover for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! March March became roadkill month. It was a bountiful free supermarket out there, if you got up in time and other road users had already done the deed. 
Badgers, foxes, pheasants, buzzards, rabbits, squirrels. Most of the rural wildlife ventured out at night, only to be taken clean out by a vehicle. Sometimes the driver didn't even notice they'd killed an animal or bird, oblivious, unless, of course, they felt the impact or their vehicle was damaged. You told me a stag could total a car. Sometimes a stag would right itself, shudder and carry on running, leaving behind the wreckage. Mornings were not my favourite time of day, but for the sake of art, I would rise earlier than usual. Well, for your art, I suppose. Raw material is key when practising an art, you said. Practice makes perfect. It's like cooking. If you have the best raw ingredients, you will produce a tastier dish than if you have inferior ones. The same with taxidermy. The more perfectly preserved the specimen, the more lifelike its representation. And the fresher, the better. So, 5am at the beginning of March, I was dressed and waiting in the truck. It was one of those frosty, slow mornings, so we didn't anticipate many people on the roads. The light was gaining, but the darkness still held on with obsidian fingers. I loved the smell of those mornings when we ventured out early, as if the earth were defrosting, giving up its layers of scent one by one. I enjoyed watching the dogs wag their whole back ends with excitement when I took them out in the fields. They couldn't even contain themselves, orgiastic delight spilling from their pink tongues as they panted and foraged with wet noses in the undergrowth. Our lawn slopes down to the hawthorn hedge, then further to the pond, where it levels out with the surrounding land. The house was elevated from the surrounding moor, our own personal island. On those March days, we could see the mist delineating where the water once lay, before the land was filtered and drained. I half expected a fleet of silent boats to emerge, carrying ghost merchants from the Far East, stuck in a time loop, still searching for precious metals in what had once been a valuable trading destination. Some say Jesus came here once, to Somerset. He sailed with his uncle, Joseph of Arimathea, and visited Glastonbury. The stories appear all over the place, like objects placed behind glass cases and labelled in a scrolling font. Just like the glass cases you sometimes use to display your creatures, traditional fishing or countryside scenes, where a fox is carrying a pheasant in its mouth. Those images infused this land of apples, Summerland, although it seemed so far from summer during those short, bitter winter days. The windscreen is scraped clear of the cold, white layer, and the heater put on full blast to clear the glass. You got your gun, in case there were any creatures that needed a final dispatching. This did happen, and I learned quickly that it was kinder to put them out of their misery. You would not hesitate to shoot an injured deer. The dogs jumped in the back of the truck, and we were off, bumping down the drive. We'll go the back way, you said. Soon we slipped down a side road and headed off toward the flat, narrow lanes of the moor, the truck clattering and the dogs whining with half-contained excitement. We'd not gone far when I saw it, the dark shadow of a badger lying on its side as if sleeping. It was probably killed only a few hours before, as the bloat hadn't set in. Top of the food chain, not many creatures eat badgers in the wild. They tend to have a tough outer layer, too hard for the birds or other mammals to penetrate. I wondered what they tasted like. 
They had once been eaten in times when food was scarce. They would not have been a first choice. Not even the carrion seemed to have a taste for their tough flesh. Some badgers remained intact for days at the side of a road. One day, when travelling to the Dorset coast, I counted fourteen of varying sizes and states of decay. Those badgers followed me all day, dragging behind at a distance in the back of my mind, as if wanting to keep moving toward a death that had already happened. I shook them off when I dived into the sea and let the waves crash over my ears, drowning out their grunts and snuffles. It was my attention that had allowed them to latch onto my thoughts. You'll do, you said, and jumped out to retrieve the carcass. It was a big old dog badger with hardly a mark on him. Probably a car had clipped him and he died at the side of the road. I noticed that most of them seemed to make it to the side of the road, as if one final burst of adrenaline launched them to the verge before their journey to the underworld. We carried on across the north train, and I saw a heron rise up out of the mist. It appeared prehistoric, a reincarnated pterodactyl with an angular thin head and wings, a mechanical wind-up bird that looked as if it didn't belong in this time. I enjoyed the serenity of those birds when I came across them, undisturbed at the edge of a reen, gazing into the water. They seemed paired back to the bones as they stood on spindly legs, in between worlds, balanced between the space of reality and legend. With their beaks they pierced the water, yet they remained on land and swept up in slow motion on wide wings, as if fighting through something denser than air. I had a lot to learn from herons. Their stoic patience made them look stuffed, even while alive, as if they had already been taxidermied and put among the reeds to outstare the fish. Later that morning, we found a hare with blood up its hindquarters, angled like a sleeping dancer across the road. I felt my heart sink. You killed the engine of the truck, and we sat in silence looking through the windscreen. Distinctively larger than a rabbit, these magnificent creatures were a rare sight. To see a hare run wild was to witness a miracle. They flew on land, like a witch riding low on her broomstick. The pagan folk used to say they were shapeshifters, the embodiment of magic, their elusiveness giving rise to their mystery. Yet they were difficult to catch sight of, experts at hiding, although the diminished shelter offered in the low fields, kept clean by machinery, seemed to make them all the more distant, as if they were removed from this world, and faded beyond the veil into the Avalonian past. There is a legend out here on the moor that to see a hare portends a tempest. The hare was symbolic of a grief-stricken woman who'd returned to haunt her unfaithful lover. That hare was a message to the both of us, and I know you felt it too. We continued to look through the windscreen of the truck until our breath started to steam the glass and obscure the view. Then, simultaneously, we both got out and walked toward where the hare lay, and, reverently, we stood before it. Its eyes were open, just as they would have been when it was born. Hares, unlike rabbits, are fully furred at birth, you once told me, bright-eyed as a hare, glimpsing the world as soon as they entered it. This was an adult brown hare, still sporting the grey of its winter coat. These lunar creatures were said to be crazy, moonstruck, 
exhibiting wild displays at nighttime that gave rise to the legend of the Mad March Hare. Will you use it? I broke the silence first. I have to, was all you replied, and crouched down to lift the limp body. You carried it in both your hands, as if carrying a tiny sleeping infant. We went home after that. Neither of us uttered a word. Even the dogs had quieted down by then. I felt glad you would resurrect it, even knowing it would never live as it had, racing wild across the fields at dusk. When we returned and drove up the driveway, I could hear the ducks noisily initiating pairings, ready for spring. Their busy bodies were upturned in the pond, ripples radiating outwards like an old LP. The sun felt hot and sharp behind the glass of the truck window, but I knew it was still chilly. March was on the cusp of change, plants tentatively poking through hardened winter soil, sap rising and buds bulging with promise. The birds knew the score. They were a barometric signifier, tuned to the slightest dip or rise in air pressure. They knew when to gather in and take shelter from impending storms. The rooks reached a crescendo of white noise from the trees, then subsided into background nasal tones with an uneven tempo, and the sun emerged from behind a hook-shaped cloud. Stillness, but not silence. Even in the space between the rooks cawing, the trees still spoke in watery hush tones, and the earth pulsed beneath us. I wanted you more than ever then. I wanted each cell of yours to merge with mine. I wanted us to create something together through passionate union. My body ached for you, even when you were inside me. The more you wanted me, the more I succumbed. My darling Pepper, you know how I will always ache for you. I remember our Valentine's Day pact. Will you honor it too? March was about the time I dispensed with cutlery and ate with my bare hands, even the messy intractable foodstuffs like fiddly peas and beans. I ripped steak between my incisors, then chewed meditatively, the juices still running down my palms until I licked them clean. I even scooped up cream with my fingers. Yes, it was disgusting. How could it not be? But strangely, it excited me as you watched me ingest with such relish the things you had prepared for our dinner, such primal delight. You'd make these small grunts too, almost imperceptible, as if emerging from beneath your beard. Then, when you finished your meal, satiated, you'd sigh and wipe your mouth on a napkin, like some lord of the manor, and toss it onto the table. I, on the other hand, would suck each one of my fingers clean, as if taunting you to taste me. Is this some kind of protest toward cutlery? you asked. But I couldn't explain it to you then. It was as if I needed to literally get my hands dirty. You must have understood this. You were always burrowing yours into the afterlives of animals. Since I had been living with you, I had less and less compassion for the human race, preferring the complexities of our animal neighbors. You were my one exception, although at times you behaved like the animals you were working with, a wily old fox, a watchful egret. I could measure the colors of your mood by your responses, morning orange or midnight blue. I read once that most of human communication is non-verbal and wondered why we bothered to speak at all. 
Most of the time when I turned on the radio, I turned it off again almost immediately. You were in the kitchen searching for something but would not let me help you. So you continued to open cupboards, at first just tentatively fingering jars and tins aside, but then removing some larger objects and shoving them blindly up onto the worktop, a glass bowl, a metal grater, an electric whisk. Then the drawers were pried open, like a dentist would stretch a patient's jaw to its limits, reaching to the very back to discover if decay had set in. You pushed your hand to the back of the drawer, a thick, hairy arm with your rucked-up sleeve, straining at the lip of the counter. I heard the utensils swish like stones in a basket under your probing digits. You were like one of the badgers that ransacked our garden foraging for food, trampling the plants and knocking over anything that stood in its path. Can I help you, Mr. Pepper? What are you looking for? I pose the questions as a test of your mood, a gauge for the start of a guessing game, another device of mine to incite you. But I wasn't even sure you were listening. The furrows on your forehead were stationed like sand on a beach at low tide, rigid and shadowed, waiting for the next wash of lunar movements to push them flat and malleable again. You knelt on the floor, looking into the corner cupboard, the one whose door opened like a pop-out greeting card, a false hinge concealing more space behind. More space to fill with needless things. I don't even remember buying most of my belongings. They seemed to collect over time, but I'd left nearly all of them at my flat when I moved in with you, as if shedding my old life like a skin. I even forgot the sketches I'd drawn and framed, and all my old photographs. I stood behind you, watching. You looked heavy on your hands and knees, like a piece of ancient stone planted firm on the earth. Your head was halfway in the cupboard, inquisitively searching in an unknown territory, when you reached forward with one arm and retrieved something. I could not see immediately, but without retracting your head, you slid it back past your kneeling body and placed it behind you, a colander, the one we would use to strain elderflower and blackberries later in the year. We had not made elderflower cordial together, but you promised me that when it bloomed in May or June, we would pick it together and make our own. The colander trailed a neglectful thread of an old cobweb, a relic of your life before I moved in with you, shoved to the back of a cupboard. Where do all these things come from? I continued watching you search for whatever it was you wanted. Then, as if all the effort was worth it, you casually pulled a pack of brown luggage labels from the cupboard, stood up awkwardly, and left me to tidy the mess you had left behind. Your moods could test me to the limit. It was the silence within you that viciously penetrated me. I endured those lingering days when you pretended I did not exist, not responding to my voice or moving away when I tried to touch you. You turned me into a ghost. Each time I heard the door close and your footsteps recede to your workshop, you took a thread within me and uncoiled it. When I tempted you with my warm body on yours, you would lie motionless like a cold corpse until I sighed and moved off you. It was only when I was close to breaking that you'd switch back to being my sweet love, an ember within you flaring to give back to me the warmth I had expended.
You had lived in this house with a whole host of other women, whom I tried not to think about. I imagined their footsteps echoing on the slate tiles, and the house filling up with more and more belongings. Where there is space, it will be filled. I had filled that space, hadn't I? You reassured me it was my home as well as yours. I could see that neither you nor previous residents enjoyed gardening. The weeds had spread like wildfire. Even after I started clearing them, I swear they waited until I turned my back and spurted like triffids from the cracks, as if playing a childhood game. Tendrils pushed up through the paving slabs and along the stone wall. Ivy twined its flat, shiny hearts across any surface it could find. I ripped at its suckered ropes, held fast like a captain's oath, great ribbons of emerald green suffocating the tree trunks, as if the ground had birthed a monster with ravenous veins. A climbing ladder, like Jack's beanstalk, would burst to the sky giants if I didn't stop it. And once I started ripping and clearing the never-ending tangle of weeds, it became a meditative obsession that I could not contain. I needed to strip back to the bare bones of the garden. Bindweed, goosegrass, nettle, all rampant and verdant, fought back spitefully, sticking thorns in my fingers as I tried to wrench the stubborn roots. When I paused, I saw the futility of my efforts. No matter how much I tore at it, it would renew and regrow. I may as well have been a mere lone insect in this vast jungle. So I retreated, cutting the lawn up to the edges and leaving the wildness to dip down to the reams and woodland and fields that surrounded our home. Land, it's the only thing that lasts, Miss Scarlet. You faked a mock Irish accent like Scarlet O'Hara's father and waved a branch at me. But was it? What if we could last forever, too, you and I? What if we could stave off the ravages of time to become our own legends? That was when I began feeling sick in the mornings, and my belly felt rock hard. I thought of what Rhett had said on the phone. Knocked up. Just like him to be so crass and so correct at the same time. I didn't normally disturb you in your workshop, but I couldn't wait until the evening. You were stretching the skin of a zebra over a head mount, its black and white markings, looked out of place without its eyes, but I could tell what it was from its thin layer of short, coarse hair and the color of its markings. You looked up and smiled. The smell met me more strongly than usual in your workshop with the doors shut, but I swallowed and tried to hold my breath. I couldn't wait to tell you. I beamed at you with a smile probably too wide for my true feelings. Scarlet, just a moment. You finished positioning the hide, then turned and faced me. I've done three tests already this morning. I waved the last of the pregnancy wands at you, its blue line stating the result in more than words. Tests? Oh, Scarlet, come here. You looked around for a cloth, and not finding one, wiped your sticky hands on your apron and held out your arms to me. I fell into them and cried, unable to hold it in any longer. You are happy, aren't you? I wanted you to be happy, so that perhaps I could ride on your bliss. Of course, of course. You were smiling, but I saw a flicker of doubt in your jaw. Was it because you felt you were too old to be a father? 
or that you doubted us being parents so early in our relationship. My tears continued hot and wet, even as you wiped them away. I cannot tell you if I felt happiness or fear. The bond between us was thickening. Memories of my parents are hazy. Rhett and I were only ten when they died, and there was no one else to fill in the gaps of family history after they were gone. There was a time when I saw my mother's face almost everywhere. Clouds formed into the shape of her eyes, or the soft curve of her neck. Her face would look down on me from the sky, before dissipating into cloud again. The back of her head materialized as I followed strangers through crowded streets, making me rush and push so as not to lose sight of her, in case it really was her, miraculously reanimated. Reflections from glass bottles and windows, even puddles mimicked her smile. I'd even catch my own reflection and think it was her looking back for a split second. And for all the visitations I used to get from other dead things, my mother never, ever returned. Not even in my dreams. I like to think this was because she was happy and had no need to revisit. But I also wondered in my darker hours if it was because she had never been good at goodbyes and simply chose not to look back. The last day I saw her was not exceptional. We'd not planned any great event. It was a weekend, and my father was due home after working away. With just Rhett and me to entertain, Mother had left the washing on the line, given us both a talking to because we'd left chewing gum on the windowsill, and it had become a stringy, sticky mess that the cat had trodden in and stretched from his paw to the carpet. Then, to make matters worse, Rhett decided to iron the carpet, as if to remove a stain. This was a ten-year-old boy's understanding of domestic science. Not wanting to get into more trouble, we tried to clean it up ourselves. The burning chewing gum smelled sweet yet acrid as it was sizzling and spreading out on the plate of the hot iron. It's part of the process, Rhett had said, laying on the carpet and peering at the bottom of the iron. It will melt, then evaporate. I watched him with a sinking feeling in my stomach, knowing he was blagging, but half hoping he might be right. It not only wrecked the carpet and the iron, but the curtains as well. We were not popular, even when we explained that we had both tried our best to clean it up. Butch, that's what our cat was called. He was long-haired and grey, with the squashed, disgruntled face of a reincarnated mafia boss. He was not too impressed by the chewing gum episode either. We had to shave a chunk of his fur off his leg, which left a bald patch. We didn't really expect any treats that day, seeing as our parents needed a new iron, a new carpet and new curtains. But my father was home after working away for several weeks, and mother wanted to make the most of it as a family. Let's enjoy family time, he said amicably when mother explained what had happened. He was due to fly out to the Middle East after the weekend, so she wanted us to have our family picnic together, and afterwards Rhett and I would go stay over at a friend's house. Mother had made egg sandwiches, and they stank. Rhett called them fartwidges and scrunched his face. We had all sorts of party food and Tupperware, crisps, sausage rolls, pork pies, scotch eggs, tomatoes and celery, those chocolate tea cakes with a marshmallow on the top. It was the only food she was really good at. In fact, it was no different than our normal meals at home, only this was outside, 
all laid out on the picnic rug at the edge of a wood near a stream. After we'd eaten, Rhett had gone off to explore down the shallow stream with an empty plastic pot and a spoon to catch tadpoles or minnows or some unsuspecting creature minding its own business. Mother and father sat together side by side, legs outstretched, his arm protectively at her back. We looked like a normal family. I was looking up at the trees, wondering why the sparrows used so much energy hopping when they could just walk, when out from the edge of the woods, a wolf came loping toward us. I screamed and leapt up from the blanket with visions of Little Red Riding Hood being tricked and eaten, just like her grandmother. The wolf headed straight for me, and I saw my father scramble to his feet, shouting, Scarlet! and mother retreating on her hands and knees, although I couldn't see her as I was running really fast, or so I thought. The wolf sank its teeth into my leg. It pulled me backwards and pushed me down at the same time. I was waving my arms and still screaming when my father whacked it on its jaw with the bat we'd used to play cricket earlier. I heard it crack as the bat came into contact with the wolf's massive head. The wolf just slumped down on my leg as I lay screaming. I blacked out, but then felt its cruel, hot weight on me, so couldn't have fainted for long. When I woke, a fat man was stumbling toward us, and father was pulling me out from underneath the limp creature, his hands hooked under my arms. I glimpsed nervously toward the wolf, which lay heavy on the grass, as if it had just decided to go to sleep. Only it wasn't an actual wolf, but one of those dogs that looked like a wolf, a Siberian husky or a Tamascan. My eyes drank in its now docile expression, tongue protruding from its bloody muscle. Sorry, sorry, the fat man was breathless as he came toward the grisly scene. He slipped his collar. Father looked up at him and down at the unconscious dog. Bruno, Bruno boy. The man wheezed as he knelt down by his dog, the dog's lead swinging round his neck like a stethoscope. What happened? I had buried my head into my mother's jumper, but quickly looked down at my leg to see I'd only been scratched by the dog's paw as he had jumped at my back. There were no bite marks as I had imagined. There wasn't even any blood, just a long pink scratch. What happened? The man kept asking the question and wheezed as he moved his weight from one knee to another. He was holding the dog's head in his lap. The blood seeped from the side of its jaw, discoloring its teeth. The man lifted the dog's eyelids, like you would an unconscious patient. What have you done? He looked up at my father, then toward the cricket bat that now lay conspicuously on the grass, then back up at my father. So many emotions flickered across that man's chubby face that I began to feel confused. His eyes seemed to flicker about like midges over a stagnant pond. You shouldn't let a dangerous animal off its lead. Father moved me and mother away from the man and his dog. Bruno's not dangerous. What have you done? You've hit him, haven't you, with that bat? The man waved his hand to the pale wood, slightly smeared with red. He attacked my daughter. Father sounded calm, so I hid behind him, looking down at the dog. My heart was racing. I was responsible for the death of an innocent creature. It made me feel sick and excited all at once.
You've fucking killed my dog. I'd never heard that swear word before, and it was the word that made me jump, not the volume of the man's voice. He said it with such vehemence, I actually felt it penetrate me. And I thought he was going to punch my father, but he just puffed and stooped and struggled to lift Bruno over his shoulder. Then he carried him off in the direction he had come. And then he was gone. Is the dog really dead? I asked my mother, forgetting the sore scratch on my leg. No, I think he's just concussed. What's concussed? He'll be fine. So he's not dead? Scomolet. My father turned to me. Enough. I sat down on the blanket and twisted my leg to look at the scratch on my calf. Mother held me in her arms, and I could not stop the tears. Not because my leg stung and pulsed at the same time, but for Bruno, the wolf dog. I knew he was dead. My father had murdered him with Rhett's cricket bat. As we drove home, mother and father were talking in hushed tones. I tried to catch what they were saying, but Rhett was being loud and boisterous, indignant that he had missed the whole drama while he'd foraged in the woods and splashed in the stream. There aren't any wolves here anymore, stupid, he said to me, holding his helicopter toy and swooping it about in front of him, bashing it into father's headrest and making crashing noises. It looked like a wolf to me, I told him. No bears either, we've killed them all off. It attacked me, I said, reinforcing my father's flaky story. Can't believe I missed it. Did Dad whack it like he was playing cricket? That's enough, Rhett. Mother stuck her hand back between the car seats to squeeze Rhett's leg. Dad killed a dog, Rhett taunted me. And it's all your fault. We celebrated the night of the three pregnancy tests with a bottle of homemade wine. A small glass won't hurt, you'd said, and we curled up by the fire. What shall we call her? How do you know it's a her, I said. Him, then. What shall we call him? Do you think it's too early to talk names? I felt superstitious, not wanting to plan anything. This wasn't planned. We could call her Hallow if she's born on October 31st. What? As in Halloween? I screwed up my nose at you. God, imagine all four of us having the same birthday. Four? You, me, Rhett, and it, of course. Oh, I forget you're a twin sometimes. So how about Hallow? Isn't that a Beyonce song? You laughed and said, I've no idea, and slept your wine as I readjusted to get comfortable on the sofa. How about Bruno? As you said the name, I felt a jolt of pain through my abdomen and flinched. Scarlet, what's wrong? I sat up and breathed deeply to ease the pain. Nothing, just sat awkwardly. Was it something I said? No, it's fine, I lied. Visions of my father pulling me out from under the dead dog danced before my eyes. I'm going for a lie down. I woke in a hot sweat later that night, with my nightdress all screwed up behind my back. You were snoring. As I pulled it back down over my body, the sheet felt sticky and cooler somehow. There was a slipperiness between my legs, and when I reached down, I felt the warm wet. It was dark in our room, so I held my fingers up to my face and sniffed, but I already knew that this was blood, lots of it, 
from my own body. I swung my feet round onto the floor and paced to the bathroom, flicking on the light to reveal a bright red patch all over the white cotton of my nightdress. Scarlet, I thought, just like my name. I froze, looking down, not sure what to do. It was on my hands and smudged on my arms, between my thighs, down my legs. Should I pee first, or wake you? Did I need to go to hospital? I felt sick and woozy, but there was no significant pain, just a dull ache like the start of a period. I knew what had happened, and for a moment a surge of relief kicked in. I turned the shower on and stepped into the bathtub, watching the blood wash away down the plug hole, and then I saw it. As I sat underneath the shower stream, with the water rushing over my head and down my body, I watched the clots of blood slide down the tub toward the plug hole, where they rested, being cleansed by the currents. I shuffled forward to clear the plug hole with my forefinger, and there was what looked like a tiny amphibious creature with head and knobbly limbs curled up as if resting. It stuck to my finger, not wanting to be washed away. I wanted to show you, so I placed it carefully on the edge of the bathtub and turned off the shower. All the while, as I dried my skin and wrapped myself up in a dressing gown and put on clean underwear, I came back to look at the edge of the bathtub, feeling numb. That's when you came in. I want to keep him, I said. You understood what had happened and nodded. You didn't speak, but looked at the tiny creature on the edge of the bathtub. You knew what to do. You could preserve animals, so why not our own flesh and blood? He could just as easily have been washed away down the plug hole or in the toilet. But I caught him and kept him here, with us. You understood my need, didn't you? He was made from the both of us. Christmas Day Today, mid-morning. We are lost songs in the morning mist. I can hear them fighting one another. The crow is cack-cacking at the rabbit. Trapped inside one body, stitched together for eternity, these creatures fight with all their might for freedom. Survival of the fittest. Indignant crow, grounded by the rabbit's mammalian traits, his wings replaced with what? A furry back and paws. He tries to launch into the air, but finds he only flops forward on all fours. Mopsy, flopsy, cotton-tailed humiliation. Crow, once harbinger of death, carrier of souls, now a lowly half-breed, emasculated into a doe rabbit's body. At least he still has his head. I feel frustration spike from him in sharp jabs. He does not know who he is. How is he defined now his wings have been stitched to another species? And what of poor rabbit, demoted to a headless ball of fluff doctored with a beak and wings? The crow's head watches, but the rabbit is blinded by decapitation. She can only sense with her body, a tail still twitching, a paw lifting tentatively to taste the air without a tongue. They are agitated. Something is coming, they say. Listen, the waves are breaking in the distance. The ice is being cut. April. 
I noticed the first butterfly appearing like a small flake of fire over the hedge. It always lifted my spirits to see one, especially the first one of spring, an awakening, a transformation occurring before my eyes. This was a red admiral, living up to its name, commanding attention. I stopped and followed its jagged flight across the garden and out of sight, and as I stood, marveling at the warm sunshine on my face, another signifier of spring cut an arc across the sky, two diving swallows. April, yet some bare trees still silhouetted the skyline behind the freshness of new growth. I tentatively exposed my skin as the sun strengthened. I wondered at the way the color green lifted my mood. On those spring days, it was as if the earth started sighing again in contentment. I breathed in deeply. There is a certain faith in the cycles of life, and you had instilled that kind of faith in me. Natural cycles and patterns swam between us, defined us. How does it hurt you? You asked as I curled up in a ball on the sofa that time of the month, cradling my belly. It feels like my insides are being tied into knots, I answered, grateful that you were not flippant, but curious and tender. Then the ache spreads through me. It's better when the flow starts. Like a release. Yes, a release and a morning too. Then you rubbed the small of my back while perched on the arm of the sofa, your touch sending messages to my core. In those moments of intimacy, we were so in tune, like the rhythms of nature. We were destined to mutate into something else. Only we didn't know it then, when the buds were protruding like sweet, tight cotyledons. You watched the wilderness creep up on our home as you watched all things, letting it absorb your identity with a quiet playfulness. I think that was how you recreated those specimens with such accuracy. You observed and absorbed. Then, as if by magic, they became something new while their essence remained. It was more than sculpture. They looked as if they could come back to life at any moment, launch into action and scamper or leap or launch into flight. The fox does not run like the badger, you said. I assumed at the time you meant this literally, but there was always another layer of meaning brushing amongst your words. It scurries, stops, sniffs, darts, whereas the badger lopes, slinks and sways. Did you mean that no matter how we were changed, we never could escape ourselves? You need to show its true character, you said. It's no good placing a fallow on a mount with his ears up, looking about. He should look dopey, like a clown. But I've seen a deer look alert. Yes, seeker deer, now there's a different character. On that type, I would position the mount with its head looking up. You saw beauty in all those creatures who revealed their essence to you. With careful study, you would resurrect them as they were in life. Did you know then that you could stitch parts of their soul back to their spent body? Some days, I wished I could have a new body. I felt so fragile at certain times of the month, bruised and tender. I remember watching three feral pigeons on our broken fence, like musical notes on a staff, each staccato head a restless note. A whisper of breeze lifted their feathers, and their silent, crisp movement softened. Two faced inwards, one away, a dance of mimicry. 
This was a menage a trois, staged grey on brown, intuitive, magnetic, heads facing east, then west. They looked oversized, filled with seed, and I envied them. I was jealous of the common feral pigeon. Why? They belonged. They were so completely in the moment, like all the other creatures. They merely seemed to react on instinct. Dandelions and grasses, sycamore and clover, seeded and planted themselves everywhere. In April, the growth accelerated, as if launching a stealthy attack of foliage on our garden. Did you want it to consume you, or were you too absorbed in your work to even notice? Tidiness and completion, in its placeness, all corresponded with my internal landscape, the moulding of my new home. After the miscarriage, I needed to make our surroundings more like our home. First, the clearing by hand of the blocked, stagnant pond at the side of the house, then removal and disposal of other detritus, after the felling of split willows and shrubs grown woody and gnarled. We burned up the debris, letting the smoke anoint us like incense. After the flames had died down and a smouldering pile of ash remained, I witnessed the light enter the front windows of the house like a long-lost friend. There was space again, as if in that clearing we'd also made way for our own new growth. The mouldings of our new life together began. One morning, I woke to find the windows of our home coated with the fine particles of another continent, as if a golden ghost had walked around and brushed against them. As I rested in bed... I looked out and imagined a sandstorm in the Arabian desert, travelling like a magic carpet across the ocean, raining gold dust as it reached land. I blinked, thinking something was in my eyes, until I realised it was not my eyesight, but a filmy layer coating almost everything. The outer world had shifted, a subtle but marked change, like the blurring of edges, not worth commenting on at the time. I heard about the sandstorm on the news, but it was passed over as if unremarkable compared to celebrity gossip. To me, it was a miracle. Dust had travelled for thousands of miles, and it was ignored like the passing clouds of moisture above us. Did we ignore the subtle erosions of our partnership? Would honesty have saved us? You saw the miracle in life, didn't you? You would still marvel at the sheer beauty presented at our feet, as if you were the ruler of a magical kingdom. An unfurling crest of bracken, the silent flight of a barn owl, the murmuration of starlings at dusk, the rawness of bark where a deer had rubbed its velvet antlers. All your observations were worth more to me than your physical presence. And in your work, you tried to preserve some of it, uncompromising and self-effacing. A cruel master to your art, you craved perfection in a world of beautiful imperfection. Yet, all the while, I witnessed your obsession, as if mimicking Orpheus descending to the underworld, and I did nothing but encourage you. You couldn't help but look back at me. Perhaps I was past saving, even then. Do you remember how you taught me to mimic a deer when we first met? You said I was lucky, as you could only attract a doe with mimicry in the short window of a few weeks. You held the edge of a beech leaf between your forefinger and thumb and blew a short feep, once, twice. Then we waited. I started to fidget, 
but you placed your hand on my arm with a look that told me to be patient. Then, emerging from the thicket, a doe. Her nose twitched, her head tilted from side to side, testing the vibrations. In that moment, I felt her heart as if it were my own. I tasted her fear. I was amazed how a cautious creature like that could be lured so subtly by your simple tricks. No buck followed, so you did not shoot. Was there peace in your eyes as you watched it leap back into the undergrowth? You held power in those moments. I wondered if you felt anything, wondered what it was like to take a life. Was the impact instantaneous as a shot pierced the hide? Or did it affect you later as you washed the day from your skin? Perhaps that was why it was important for you to ingest the deer. That time I went stalking with you, I understood your relationship to your work. You did not use your bare hands like a savage to kill the deer. You were removed like a god from the physical act of death. Although I have no doubt you were prepared to use your hands if you needed to. Yet when you killed a deer, you showed respect and reverence. I understood the need to cull a creature that swelled in numbers. They were damaging to the environment when no other predator hunted them. This insight could not deaden the spike of sadness. Each time you dispatched one and brought it home in the back of your truck, limp and lifeless as a wilted plant. As I watched, I had not even considered the striking similarities between myself and those deer. But now I see it. You lured me with a silent, powerful instinct. The pain of not keeping your child within me hit me, and I wept, not for our loss, but for my failure. It crept up like indigestion from the pit of my stomach to my throat, and once the tears started, I just couldn't stop crying. I sought out natural water to cleanse myself, the barrier-less reams that marked the division of worlds, each side looking to the other, above and below the waterline. There, the marsh marigold adorned the intimate passing place between water and earth. Arrowhead pushed to the light from its liquid foundation. I sat on the edge of the rain, soaking the hem of my dress with the field's juices, and let my bare feet slide slowly down the soft margin where the bank meets the waterline. It was here, in this liminal space, that I felt freedom. The world seemed unfinished, like your experimental creatures. Frogbit and duckweed pretended to offer support, with dense green blankets coating the surface of the water, yet the rain was deep. I felt the cold water deaden the sensation in my skin as my ankles were enveloped. Then came the point of no return, as my calves, then knees, sank deeper below the water. I slid down, hoping my feet would reach the peaty bottom of the rain, but I kept sinking. Beneath me lay the silt-laden layer of nutrient-rich liquid that would spill up and over onto the land, like the dark, deliberate pouring of gravy on a pie. My waist reached the water level and deliciously caressed my groin, heavily sticking the fabric of my clothes to my legs. I kept sinking and slipping as my feet tried to find some footing below. Something wide and ribbon-like touched my leg, but I raised my arms above the surface, so I was half-floating, half-treading water. The willow trunks on the far side had grown tall and lean, split down vertically like flipped-up divers' legs. 
I dunked the upper half of my body beneath the waterline, once, twice, then completely submerged my head for only a few seconds before emerging, plastered in duckweed and dead reeds. Shivers took hold of me, even with the sun directly on the exposed parts of my body. I tried to swim, but my clothes were hindering me. Pulling my dress up and over my head, I was nearly naked in the water. I rolled it into a sodden ball and threw it toward the bank where it landed with a liquid kiss. Even though the water was cold and dark, I found solace there among the sedges. Then it began to rain and all became water. I was born again, baptised. I knew my tears would soon dry up because I had you, the love of my life. And even though I had no idea we would get married so quickly, I am happy we did. It was another bond forged between us. We are both impulsive, I know. Yet this memory still remains one of the most vivid days of my life. I only wish Rhett had been there to give me away. I know you thought him selfish, but really he is a simple soul. He's not in the slightest bit interested in others' pleasures, unless they directly involve him. It was so easy, just the two of us. No guest list to worry about, effortless. All we did was book the register office and ask a passerby to be a witness. A bit like a lucky dip, selecting a stranger from the crowd who hesitantly signed her name, as if signing a death warrant. Do you think she dined out on our story, or let us drip from her memory like blood off a knife? I wasn't going to miss dressing up, though, even if we were the only participants at our wedding. I'd never fantasized about my wedding day, like some girls seem to do, planning every detail, even before they'd met their potential spouse. But I loved to have the excuse to spruce up. The frills and lace of my mother's wedding dress were perfect, if a bit dated, the flowers I'd picked from the garden, red and white roses with ivy trailing like an emerald ribbon, were gorgeous. I couldn't stop touching you and your tweeds. You looked so smart. To you, Henry Royston Pepper, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife. I can still hear her lisp as she said your name. But I became Mrs. Scarlet Pepper. Sounds like something sprinkled on your steak to hot it up. Scarlet Pepper. You chose a Bob Dylan song, and it still rings in my ears. I want you. How I wanted you then. So bad. You held me close, and we walked in step toward the truck to go to our honeymoon destination. It wasn't far from home, but for one night we pretended we were miles away. It might as well have been anywhere, as we hardly left the room apart from a short walk about the grounds of the house. It was a medieval house hotel, something private and decadent. The peacocks strutted about looking for mates and let out high-pitched shrieks that seemed to reverberate through the thick stone walls. I think the receptionist was a bit shocked when we turned up, as if she'd overlooked a wedding reception taking place. But you laughed and reassured her. Don't worry, dear, you said. We're only passing through. Are there any other guests in your party? No. Would you like to book a reservation for dinner this evening? I think we'll have it in our room. You looked at me. I know you were thinking of me eating with my hands in front of other diners. It would have raised quite a few eyebrows. The receptionist looked at the both of us, 
probably wondering how we could make such an unlikely pairing. What did she see? A young woman and a man twice her age, a typical father-daughter scene. However, we were clearly bride and groom. Age didn't seem too much of a taboo, but I remember once I was mistaken for your daughter. Did that make you feel old? Perhaps it was because I looked so young for my age, so the gap seemed to widen in the eyes of those who inquisitively judged us. You kissed me on my neck, lingering, while still facing the reception desk. The poor girl looked down, an uncomfortable rash of red spreading up her neck. How were you able to cast such spells so quickly? Was it something about your aura, pushing forwards and enveloping everything in intoxicating smoke? The girl gave a nervous cough as she passed us the key, then blushed even more as you winked at her. The peacocks are very loud, you growled at her. I'm so sorry, sir, she blushed again. I pulled you away and we ascended the stairs side by side, arm in arm. Once in the room, you took no time to set about consummating our marriage. Keep your dress on, you grunted, as I sat on the edge of the four-poster and kicked up my legs so you could glimpse under my dress. You unclasped your belt and slipped off your jacket, then popped the buttons one by one on your waistcoat so it hung open. I leaned back and kicked off my shoes. You faced me, loosened your belt and whipped it off with one movement. I could see you bulging to release from your trousers, so I lay back. The bed was harder than I anticipated, and the room was dark. Dark wood, dark burgundy brocade curtains that hung tied back from the bed, dark walls and dark polished wooden floor. You stalked toward me with the front of your trousers unzipped, your shirt tails loose. I felt like prey you were about to play with. My blood quickened. Well, Mrs. Pepper, what do you propose we do about this situation in which we find ourselves? I had reapplied the reddest lip gloss so it shined pornographically. You reached beneath the hem of my wedding dress and stroked your hand up my leg to my inner thigh. I parted my legs and we were surrounded by a furrowing balloon of lace and silk, layers of petticoat billowing like a cloud between your body and mine. Yet beneath... The heat was rising as you felt round my suspenders, hooked your fingers around my silk underwear and stripped it all down my legs with the same care you took in your work. I fidgeted on my back and slid further up the bed and you disappeared in a flourish under the layers of my dress. I gazed up at the ceiling of the four-poster bed, ornate carved figurines of angels and naked women entwined with fruit between their breasts and thighs. You were waiting not touching me, so I edged my body closer to your face. Then came the sweet, wet pleasure of your tongue, dancing as you swept your lips over me. I could feel your beard grazing and tickling my thighs, and tried to imagine each expression playing across your features. I wanted to tell you how it felt, to try to put it into words, but the words didn't matter anymore. I could not define how you made me feel. From beneath the covers of my dress, you emerged and pressed your body into mine. We found each other instantly, pushing deep and rhythmic as my body convulsed in waves. You grabbed my waist, lifting me up onto you, you still inside me. 
I pushed my weight down as the material of our clothes concealed our bodies. Oh, Mrs. Pepper, you were so hungry today. I wanted you to lose yourself, to be so removed you could not speak, so thrusted faster and deeper with my pelvis, contracting my muscles to suffocate you and suck you inside. Fill yourself, my darling, fill yourself up. You kept taunting me as if I were the needy one. None of my movements seemed to make you speechless. Just fuck me harder, Rhett. I don't know where the words came from, but you looked startled. Then the shock turned to brute force. You pushed me roughly against the hard mattress, turned me round so I was facing down on the bed. You fumbled with my dress, pushing it up and over my backside, and crashed against me, your thick cock pushed hard inside. In and in and in, your hand hard against my back, crushing the air out of me. I'll fuck you if you want. Is this what you want? You drilled me harder and harder, panting and grunting. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. Please. I tried to move, but your weight pinned me, and I felt hot tears sting my eyes as you kept crushing me as if a mallet were driving me into the hard mattress. Please. Hard enough, you bitch. You shuddered, then collapsed onto me. We lay breathless. My face was pressed into the sheets. My body felt split, wet and filthy. La petite mort. Moments before, my body had felt soft, clean and gloriously open. This was my wedding day, our wedding day. But after I'd spoken another's name, you turned from lover to beast, as if a door were slamming shut between us. My world darkened. The heat dissipated from our bodies. Everything felt fake and undone. Knocks at the door broke the silence, like a little pecking bird. It roused me out of my stupor. It was nearly eight o'clock. I must have fallen asleep. I felt you ease off the edge of the bed before getting up to answer the door. With the door opened just a crack, you said. That's fine. Just leave it there. I'll fetch it in a moment. Then the awkward fumbling of keeping the door open as you pushed the trolley inside. Scarlet? You sat back on the edge of the bed and touched my back with your fingertips. I know I must have flinched because you lifted it away. Are you hungry? I turned around to face you, my makeup smudged and my hair disheveled. Was it something in my expression that told you our love had changed, shifted into a matrix of power? You hurt me, I said. I didn't mean to. You made me do it. Made you? I don't know why I said his name. Hush, it's okay. It's okay. You placed your finger to my lips, silencing me. Sitting before me was a different man, a reflective, calm, gentle man, the one I had married earlier that day. But I was left puzzling over who was right and who was wrong. Shall we eat? You lifted the domed metal lids off the plates to reveal what looked more like a piece of modern art than our dinner. You picked up the menu and read... Spliced sea bream enrobed in mustard seed jus, set on a bed of steamed purple-sprouted broccoli. I sat up, hugging my legs, and looked toward the food. Scarlet, let's not fight. This is our wedding day, be happy. You patted me on my leg. I am happy. I was. 
you made me happy. You lifted another cover from the dishes on the second tier of the trolley. Look, strawberries and meringue with chocolate sauce and berries. You held the plate between us, and I dipped my fingers in to retrieve a strawberry. It was sweet and firm. The meringue fizzed as I crushed it between my teeth. I liked you watching me, consuming me with your eyes. Of course, we forgave each other for our little ways, our strange quirks. We were destined to share everything. I wanted to share it all with you, the whole fucked up mess that I was. I woke later that night, and for a moment didn't recall we were in the hotel. It was so dark, but it wasn't the dark that bothered me. There was something in the room other than the two of us. I tried to listen between your snores, but there was no sound I could discern, not a footstep or the rustle of clothes. But I could sense a presence. There was a disturbance in the atmosphere, like a ghost or the echo of a ghost. As if something had been reflected into this world and was testing the environment, much like a reptile tests its surroundings by flicking its tongue. It was the space in between the space that I could sense. The peacock's cries had lessened as darkness fell, but this was closer. I thought of the frieze above us carved on the ceiling of the four-poster. I pictured the birds flitting among the women, bulbous fruit draped around the cornices. I attuned my senses to the window. It had turned chilly later in the evening, and now, out of my wedding dress, I felt cooler under the sheets. I pulled the heavy covers back over my body from where they'd shifted over toward your side of the bed. Then I felt as if something small but weighty leapt upon our bed. At first, I thought a cat had entered our room unnoticed and now wanted to claim its place on the bedding. But as I strained my eyes, I could see it was not cat-shaped. I tapped you on your arm, but you carried on sleeping. Frozen, I watched as the creature, the size of a small dog but with giant outstretched wings, wobbled toward me, growling and hissing. It sounded similar to the guttural echoes from your throat as you snored. A scream got stuck, and I strained to emit it. Only a breathy exhalation came from my mouth. The thing was getting closer to my head, now rolling slowly up my body. It had huge, wide wings, and in front of that appeared two giant snakes, until I realized they were not snakes but swan's heads, swaying with wide-open beaks. A mad gorgon unleashed in the form of the... Oh my God, I thought... It looked like the swoodle. I couldn't move. Both swan's heads were arched back as if to strike out my eyes. Sss, the creature hissed. Scarlet, release us. Scarlet. You were leaning over me. Scarlet, what's wrong? I opened my eyes and sat bolt upright. A shaft of morning light burst through the heavy curtains of the room. You looked alarmed. There was nothing in the room except for us and the ornate furniture. The trolley of food looked too metallic and out of place in such a medieval room, as if a futuristic aircraft had landed in the middle of a period drama. Did you have a bad dream? You were looking at my face, stroking my damp hair. It wasn't a dream. You were mumbling, trying to say something. The swoodle was here. The swoodle? I could tell you thought it amusing how I named all the hybrid sculptures. 
You have to stop making those things, those mixed-up creatures. Scarlet, what are you talking about? The show, the spring show. You can't do it. It's not right. You need to go back to stuffing creatures the way you used to, as they were in life, true replicas. But I've got so many specimens ready now. I can't just pull out at the last minute. Besides, it was your idea. You talked me into it, remember? Why the sudden change? It's not right. You keep saying that. What's not right? They are already dead. This is exactly the kind of outdated attitude that people have about taxidermy. I thought you were different. No, I don't mean... I'm doing the show, Scarlet. You can come or not. I've made all those exhibits and I'm going to be there. So that was your final answer. And, like being swept along by a strong current, I could do nothing but hang on and hope we didn't drown. It's clear that Scarlet is haunted by loss and grief from present and past events. Even a decadent impulse wedding cannot get rid of her dark thoughts. The creatures are ever-present, and they are not happy. In episode 3, Scarlet senses there's something she just can't grasp, something that holds the clue to how she got to where she is now. Stay tuned to find out what that might be. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry. The audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.